podcast, Pass It On. This is a podcast in which lecturers in the literature programme at York St John University will talk about their research interests and activities to give you a flavour of the kinds of work they're producing and the ideas that fascinate them. And it's a podcast with a twist, because as well as talking about their own work, they're going to ask their colleagues questions about their work. So we'll be learning more about what our team is doing alongside you, the listeners. That's right. Each interviewee will turn interviewer in the next episode, taking it in turns until we've all talked and we've all listened. And by that point, we should have offered a really good sense of what we and our colleagues are doing. What are the ideas that intrigue us? What are the texts that we turn to again and again? Where did it all start and where will it end? What are the questions we keep asking, the arguments we want to make, and how, in short, did we end up here? I, Dr Adam James Smith, Senior Lecturer in 18th Century Literature. And I, Dr Joe Wars, Senior Lecturer in 19th Century Literature. Will be your guides on this journey into literary research at York St John University. And our next interview is with me, Joe Wall. <laughs> Dr Jo Waugh is a senior lecturer in 19th century literature, as we've already mentioned. She researches the Bronte sisters, contagion, Victorian contagion. And the Brontes and contagion. The Brontes and contagion. You are working on a book with Palgrave at the moment, aren't Mm -hmm. you, called Brontes and contagion. Uh, Bronte contagions, yeah. Bronte contagions. You were nearly right. Yeah, Yeah. Um, so you do all of that. Uh, Mm. You've also historically been interested in the weather. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, Victorian meteorology and climate theories yes yeah and some but, people might recognize your name in conjunction to the idea of satire as well yes um although that doesn't really come up in the interview um but yes i'm also a founding member of the york research unit for the study of satire yeah with yourself dr yeah. adam smith yeah yeah and uh, and also co-host for a long-running podcast called smith and water class satire and co-host of a short-running podcast called pass it on yes yeah. <laughs> and uh, and you're often interviewed by people about all of these things and you've appeared on backlisted podcast yep um, um, but I've never been interviewed by Dr Alexander Beaumont no you haven't which is what the listeners are about to hear yeah well, I have just... but once and this is that time and it's going to happen now it seemed a shame not to do a little bit of uh, Smith and mm. Moore back and forth uh, given that it's, it's your turn so so doing the interview in this week will be Dr Alexander Beaumont Senior Lecturer in Literature and Politics at York St John University of course the interviewee from our last episode that's the yep. format and he'll be talking to you now. So, shall we play it? Let's play the interview. All right, morning, Joe. How are you doing? You okay? Yeah, morning. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. Great. Okay, so I, I thought we could just get started uh, with um, a summary of your research interests. How would you sum up your own research interests for our listeners? Um. So, right now... Everything that I am interested in, although um, sometimes it goes in different directions, is kind of centred around the Brontes. Um, So I recently finished a chapter about the Brontes and popular culture for an edited collection, and that was about the ways in which the Brontes novels, and especially the ones that Patsy Stoneman calls extravagantly famous, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights, the ways that they're assimilated and resisted in popular culture. Um, so there's that kind of angle to it. And then the other sort of big strand to it is the relationship between the Brontes and Contagion, both in a literal sense, like how did they encounter, respond to and engage with contagious diseases and the idea of contagion in their in their lives and in their works. And also, and this is where it overlaps with the popular culture stuff, the ways that contagion applies to the Brontes in terms of those 
memes and tropes and myths about them that are propagated and that um, sort of flourish and adapt in popular culture and in merchandise as well. So yeah, every, everything at the moment comes back to or comes out of the Brontes. So there's a real, I was, I was about to describe you as a Bronte file, but then there's also this sort of sense that uh, so much of the criticism surrounding and so much of the kind of popular culture surrounding them is sort of a misrepresentation of them in all kinds of ways, which seems yeah. to kind of structure quite a bit of your work. Yeah, it does. And I think that that question about the Bronte file is a really interesting and a pertinent one, because I think most Bronte scholars have perhaps more so than with other areas that people are interested in. There's a kind of conflict between or maybe not a conflict, but um, a complicated relationship between the idea that, yeah, you might have come to this because as a child you got taken to Haworth or you saw an adaptation of Jane Eyre and you were really fascinated by the stories of these these women in their parsonage and you know you, you quite like the gift shops and the merch and the story and um, and all and even some of the myths that come out of it but then there's a distinction between the ways that you that you think about the text of course and the way that you approach them critically but I think it's something that a lot of Bronte scholars sort of wrestle with at times that relationship between fandom and criticism and they they often overlap as well I think so I think you're you're kind of right to apply that term with caution and mm. pause and think about it I really like the phrase extravagantly famous I, I kind of feel like uh it's uh maybe maybe we should stop talking about canonical texts and start referring <laughs> to certain texts as just extravagantly famous <laughs> yeah I wish I could claim it but it's uh it's Patsy Stoneman's but she's absolutely right though those texts are um just bizarrely almost famous and and present both Again, in the same in the same way as the term Bronte file is is complicated, they're texts that people some people absolutely love, adore, engage with, um, in a uncritical, which I don't mean a, in a pejorative sense, but in a in a in the sense that they identify with those texts or those texts are kind of talismans for them. But they're also two of the texts that have generated the most critical attention and different forms of analysis over the years since they've been published so yeah it's um it's an interesting one mm. has, it, has it always been about the Brontes view or is there a kind of a wider sort of research interest that this has emerged out of in your in your own sort of academic history no it's it was a sort of slow and um often not linear progress from so my my PhD was about um, the weather and climate and meteorology in the Victorian period. Um, and so one part of that, and perhaps we'll talk about this more later, but one part of that was about the role of climate and meteorology in health and disease and cure. And the Brontes were the focus for that chapter. And then I didn't think about them or that topic for quite a while, and then sort of gradually came back to them um kind of actually there was a it was a Bavs conference in 2016 and the topic was Victorian consumptions and at first I thought like oh consumption TV the Brontes I'll do that and then that became about consuming the Brontes in in the sense of kind of merchandise and autobiography and so on and then that sort of led me towards the whole um contagion thing um, and and back to disease and bodies and cures again. 
So yeah, a slightly tortuous route out of a, a fifth of my PhD. It's, it's interesting because there's an engagement here with sort of scientific discourses in one way or another. Did you, when you were, when you were producing your PhD and when that sort of subsequently developed into the current focus on, Bron on the Brontes and Contagion, was, were you sort of aware of yourself as belonging to this new sort of subfield, the medical humanities? Were you aware of this sort of, or self-consciously aware of this engagement with scientific discourse or... Was it something um, that you were sort of arising, arriving at sort of independently of that? Yeah, the latter, to be fair. Um, so I hadn't really thought about the term medical humanities when I did the PhD, but I was aware that both when I was thinking about meteorology and the history of meteorology, there's kind of an element of, of science in that. But actually more so the way that um, the way this started to be, to have a intermittently sort of scientific focus was where I was thinking about climate in relation to evolution so books like it, the two books that kind of were most influential in that were Gillian Beer's Darwin's Plots and actually three books um, Sally Shuttleworth's George Eliot and 19th Century Science and also Sally Shuttleworth's Charlotte Bronte and Victorian Psychology and starting to to realize how intertwined scientific discourse and debate and controversy in the 19th century were with what was going on in the novel in order to to think about that and detect it within the novel you inevitably start you have to have some understanding of what Darwinian evolution is and what it isn't and what its implications for the narrative in particular are so actually probably that angle came more out of thinking about evolution and the role that climate did or did not play in evolution and seeing the ways in which really exciting critics and theorists were kind of using those ideas and what they were extrapolating from them. I think that that's where it came from. And yeah, as you say, that that's kind of now geared more towards a medical humanities focus. I guess that's really interesting so it seems that sort of there's a kind of a quarrel with the false dichotomy of the sort of two cultures that we get from C.P. Snow there you know historically yeah uh, there's 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 no actual very sound basis for drawing a, a completely um, emphatic line between scientific and scientific discourses and what get called today slightly euphemistically the humanities and you, it seems that your work is sort of trying to trouble that distinction right yeah I mean it's hard to it's hard to argue for any historic sense of the two cultures when you look at somebody like George Eliot who seems to have considered it you know unquestionable and essential that you would know what's going on in psychology who's writing what about evolution or scriptural geology or whatever you know somebody somebody like that who just quite naturally engages with all of those things and specifically alludes to them in novels and and names these theories and ideas and and it's not just her other people do but she's perhaps a a strong example of that oh and I suppose that's you know, there is just less distinction between what we now call disciplines um in the Victorian period and before there isn't a distinction there isn't a notion that there's a thing called science that humanities people wouldn't understand but then I guess once English literature becomes a subject you can study at university and the humanities become a thing then they have to distinguish themselves against other disciplines don't they and then and now we see that in the, the 
the kind of dichotomies and the the discourse around like you know we have to get more people doing stem subjects we have to prioritize these subjects over those subjects um but it's it's recent i think isn't it that the idea that these things are in opposition to one another yeah i sort of find myself respond i understand why um why there's so much focus on sort of expanding STEM to STEAM. Um, yeah. But there's a part of me that thinks, well, what are the limits of this? At what point do we just call this the university? Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually just defend it on the basis of the fact that this is where a certain kind of knowledge gets produced and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and both ways as well, you know, literary critics and people in the humanities of of necessity a lot of the time need to have some sense of of what's going on in other disciplines or what was going on in other disciplines but I think it's probably also a, a misrepresentation to think that those people we think of as scientists or working in STEM have no engagement with the humanities yeah. and that and and Darwin again is like a, a key example of that you know he he read and he took the lessons of how narrative works and how you tell a story from the fiction and the novels that he that and the poetry that he read and you know he too didn't didn't think that these things exist in isolation from one another yeah that's really interesting it's it, it's sometimes it's a mistake isn't it to sort of sit in you know the, the bastion of the arts and then speak to or of even worse uh, practitioners of the scientists uh, of the sciences rather in a way that sort of supposes that they're not familiar with storytelling when actually there yeah. are so many excellent popularizers of science that are very very kind of au fait with narrative technique because you yeah. have to be to, to, to talk about it in a way that is um sort of comprehensible in a wider way yeah absolutely um, so is is uh, the you've sort of alluded to this a little bit already um but it seems that notwithstanding what you said about the the slightly circuitous sort of route through to the to the current to your current work it's, it seems to me to be kind of totally cogent are you um what are you working on at the moment um, so what I'm doing at the moment is a, a monograph, hopefully to be completed in 2023, called Bronte Contagions. So that, as I said, that's going to reflect on contagion generally as, as something in the Bronte's lives and particularly, um, so there are three kind of literal diseases that are relevant to their texts and to them would be TB and typhus and rabies. Um, but also think about, as I said, the kind of myths and memes and their, the way they propagate contagiously and the way that, um, the, the way more broadly that we, I argue, generally have been quite resistant to thinking of the Brontes as people who lived in, um, in contagious times and who understood contagion. And um, so there's, this might be a bit niche, but there's, there's often... Um, there's an argument which I think is seeped down into popular understanding that everybody in the Victorian period thought that disease came from bad smell slash miasma and they didn't understand contagion whatsoever. Miasma was always the sort of go to explanation and that that is what how the Brontes would have understood pretty much all disease. So within the medical humanities, the, the idea that contagionism and miasmatism were like strictly at two ends of a, a spectrum and they never intersected. And if you believed in miasma, you didn't believe in contagion and vice versa. That's been contradicted for a while now, like since the since the late 70s. And it's clear that there were people there were contingent contagionists or people who believed that 
even though miasma is a powerful explanation, sometimes it intersects with contagion and so on. But all, it's one of those things where even though it's fairly clear that there wasn't this kind of massive opposition and that everyone in the Victorians thought that smell, that to, the famous line is like, smell, smell is disease or that bad smells cause disease. That, that has still sort of obtained in a lot of discussions about the Brontes um, and, and in discussions about the Victorians and disease generally. So part of what I want to do is make the case that contagion was not only like a real and genuine threat, but it was something that they understood and that disease is represented as contagious in, in their novels more frequently than has necessarily been picked up. But also the fact that we've tended to read the Brontes through a miasmatic lens or through a lens which supposes that everything they thought about disease was miasmatic and that it came in on the weather and you cured it by different weather and so on. Um, that we've also tended to think of they themselves as people as not really having the capacity to be contagious or to be infected by contagion. And my most obvious example of that is that even though three of them died of TB in the same house, or well, suffered from TB in the same house within less than a year, it's very rarely suggested in biography that they might have given it to one another, that one of them was ill and the house was full of germs and that's, that's why the others caught it and died. And instead their deaths tend to be framed in terms of their personalities, like Emily caught a cold because she was sad and then Anne got TB because she couldn't really exist in a world without Emily and even though we can't we we know how TB works we know it's like a wildly contagious disease and yet particularly in the 1940s when in the 1940s in England like TB is a massive social concern and you address it by slum clearances and mandatory x-rays and isolating victims and yet it's in that period, exactly the point where that's what TB means to anybody who's alive in the late 40s, that the biographies of the Brontes are most insistent on kind of individual, characteristic, non-contagious reasons why they all sickened and died from a contagious disease within the space of a year. So that was, a, that was quite a long explanation, sorry about that. But um, Kind of a big part of what I want to do is kind of make a claim for the importance of contagion both on a literal and a, and a literary level with the Brontes um, in terms of their biographies, in terms of their texts um, and the ways in which both of those things have been generally resistant to acknowledging the role of contagion as it applied to them. That's fascinating. It's. I, I mean, this is a this is a question that arises so frequently in relation to your work now because of the experience of the last two years. But have you? Everybody speak. Everybody. There was a moment, sort of, in twenty twenty, where everybody became an amateur epidemiologist, and uh, there was a kind of a, a kind of a popular engagement with theories of contagion. Everybody understood, you know, what what the what the uh, the, the RO kind of figure is, and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. Have you found that as the pandemic developed, your own interest deepened or did you find that in some ways the kind of popular commentary in relation to it was a bit of a distraction from your own sort of specifically intellectual endeavours? 
It's been a mixture, I think, because sometimes the parallels have been really compelling and I've wanted to allude to them. And I definitely do in my teaching. So when I'm teaching like literature and disease, obviously different things come up and different observations come up both from me and from, from students. Um, in writing, sometimes I kind of want to allude to it. Um, and I guest edited a special edition of Bronte studies that was about the Brontes and disease and contagion. And quite a few of the articles in that do allude to the, the, the COVID crisis and at, at the stage it was at when that came out. Um, having spent a couple of years reading and thinking about contagion, like in the abstract um, and theoretically, in the in the few years before COVID happened, it has been really interesting to me to see some of the things that I've seen considered in that sort of abstract sense play out on the ground. So, for example, the um, there's an argument that generally the more sort of autocratic the regime, the keener they are on quarantinist measures, lockdowns, barriers to trade, um, impinging on citizens' personal lives and choice. Whereas the more the more liberal the government, the, the more keen they are not to, to sort of stress environmental and local responses and individual responsibility. And they're very reluctant to put any sort of limits on trade and interaction. And that, that kind of makes a lot of intuitive sense, but it's been really interesting to see over the last few years, the ways that, and um, particularly the US and the UK, perhaps just because they're the ones we hear and see most about, have sort of vacillated between those two points mm. and the ways in which like autocratic leadership and liberal leadership have come into very visible conflict with one another. And you see Boris Johnson and Joe Biden sort of trying to mediate between those two responses. And, and it's interesting because like Boris Johnson's fiercest opponents often sort of, and I, I know this happens in all kinds of contexts, and I think it's something you don't like either, but um, labeling him as a fascist, Boris Johnson, yeah. the fascist prime minister. And his, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> and his response to COVID has been anything but, particularly yeah. since July 21. Um, most of the criticisms leveled at him have been, that you know, he doesn't care that people are, are dying, he'll do anything to open up the economy. Like he's been the, the opposite of a fascist yeah. about um about covid and donald trump too same applies um yeah I, you know his his response was mixed and often conflicting but it it wasn't um it, it's generally in fact the countries we think of as being more liberal have been much keener to shut down society and um, angela mm. merkel like literally said there's only one way we're going to deal with that and that is to close down public life as far as possible Early, early on at least so yeah it's been fascinating to see how stuff that I've read and thought about quite a lot as conceits that I might apply to reading the Brontes have played out in the world around us over the last two years. Well you've talked a little bit about what you have what you're working on at the moment and obviously you've guided us through your own sort of intellectual development looking back on your sort of career thus far as an academic, is there a particular um, activity, a particular publication or a particular uh, sort of moment in which people engage with your ideas that you're particularly sort of proud of? Um, there's, I think there's been a few that have been important um, and probably one of the most, one of the things that made the biggest 
impact on what I did and what, how I thought about what I did was that paper at a conference in 2016 where I, I was I was very sort of conscious that I was doing a different kind of paper than I had before when I talked about the Brontes and consuming the Brontes. And I mean, you do get a bigger audience for that than if you try and do a paper about uh, Robert Fitzroy and scriptural geology in the 1830s. And so obviously, like the more people there are, the more feedback you get. But it, I kind of realised in that moment that I really, I genuinely enjoyed talking about that stuff, that I had a lot more to say about it and that it was something that people were kind of engaging with and, and asking questions about and suggesting the ways in which that argument might go. So, I mean, just a Common Our Garden 20 minute um, conference paper did has been quite important in the way that I've, I've gone with this. And, and then I suppose a couple of years after that, where I sort of shifted in terms of what I was writing was the, an article about um, Charlotte Bronte's novel Shirley and Rabies and the Politics of Contagion and that kind of marked the point where that's that was what I started writing about and wanting to think about in in a more long form way than a entertaining 20 minute talk. Um, yeah it's that's fascinating it's interesting isn't it that um, in some ways the 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 moments that are easy to describe as minor as, as sometimes even sort of throwaway you know you take a chance on on a particular yeah. paper or whatever can actually be completely formative can't they the more you talk the more it starts to make sense and that applies in a 20 minute panel as well i think yeah that's absolutely right yeah i think it's it's sort of it's uh it's easy to sort of mischaracterize academics as windbags but actually <laughs> talking through these ideas is is sort of fundamental to the generation of uh, to the generation of the knowledge that we're particularly sort of interested yeah. in in propagating all right. Well, thanks, Joe. I think that, that brings us to a close. Thanks so much for answering my questions today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this instalment of Pass It On, a Words Matter podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to hear more, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on your podcast platform of choice or by giving us a yell on Twitter using at YSJLit. If you'd like to hear more about life and the literature programme at York St John University, be sure to check out our blog, Words Matter. Uh, check out Words Matter, where you will find news and commentary written by students on our literature programme. And if you'd like to find out more about studying literature with us, either as an undergraduate on our English literature programme or a postgraduate on our MA in Contemporary Literature, be sure to visit our programme pages on the York St John website, yorksj.ac.uk. Or again, drop us a line on Twitter using at YSJLit. In the next instalment of Pass It On, Joe will be interviewing Senior Lecturer and Associate Head of Creative Writing and Film and Media, Dr Liesel King. He'll be talking about science fiction, feminism, Ursula Le Guin, sustainability in the stars, repopulation, and much more besides. That's right, so tune in then. But for now, goodbye. This episode of Party Tom was produced, presented and edited by Adam Smith and Joe Wall in association with the literature programme team at York St John University. <laughs>